Hello and welcome to episode 26 of the HP Lovecast podcast. I'm Michelle Brittany, editor of the Bram Stoker nominated Horror in Space and co-editor of Horror Literature from Gothic to Postmodern. I'm an independent scholar specializing in horror, tiki, and James Bond studies. Uh, Good morning. Uh, My name is Nicholas Dyack. I'm a pop culture scholar of Peplum Films, Industrial Music, Horror Studies. I'm the editor of the new Peplum from McFarland and the other co-editor of horror literature from Gothic to Postmodern. Uh, For today's episode, we'll be discussing two short stories from the Dark Regions Press anthology, The Children of Glacky, The Inhabitant of the Lake by Ramsey Campbell, and Mirror Fishing by John Langan. This 2017 collection was edited by Brian M. Sammons and Glenn Owen Barras. We'll start today's episode talking about the former, then the latter. We'll finish the episode sharing news and other housekeeping items, including what we'll be discussing for next month's podcast. So we know it's been quite a while between this episode and the last, and we sincerely thank each of you for sticking around with us Uh, as we work to get this podcast up and running again. And without further ado, Part 1, The Inhabitant of the Lake by Ramsey Campbell. Thomas Cartwright is a notable artist who creates many macabre paintings. Seeking a new residence outside London, he and his friend Alan, who's the protagonist of the story, visits property for sale. Six houses at a gloomy lake next to a forest. The houses are purportedly haunted. The houses turn out to be in bad shape, except for one that is somewhat livable, which Thomases agree to purchase. He moves in and begins working on his paintings. Over the course of many weeks, he and Alan correspond via letters. Over over time, Thomas starts having bizarre dreams about an entity living at the bottom of the lake. He also happens upon a hidden bookcase, which contains the voluminous set of the Revelations of Glacky. Thomas writes to Alan about what he learns in his dreams and through the tomes. Glacky is an alien entity that has arrived many centuries ago. He came on a meteor that had a city on it, and the meteor crashed on Earth, its impact crater filled with water, becoming the lake. Glacky resides at the bottom of this lake in his city. Glacky is covered in spines and tendrils, which he can shoot out, and those hit with them become his servants, eventually falling to the green decay meaning that sunlight will eventually hurt them. Occult forms that serves Glacky over the years in writing the eponymous revelations of Glacky. After a while, Thomas phones Alan in a panic. He is fleeing his house and needs Alan, who has a car, to come get him. Alan arrives, but his car becomes sabotaged before they can escape the lakeshore homes before nightfall. They instead barricade themselves in uh, Thomas's house, which becomes besieged with Glacky's servants. Thomas grabs an axe and leaps into the fray, charging at Glacky, who impales him on a spine. Thomas is able to hack away at the tendril, causing Glacky and his minions to flee, but Thomas succumbs to his injury. The next morning, Alan finds the body of his friends and reports to the authorities. He turns the spine over to the professors at the university, who are puzzled at its composition. So... Before we go any further, who is Ramsey Campbell? Well, uh, I'm pretty sure a lot of y'all listening know who he is, but just in case, 
He is a British horror author who's been writing since the late 50s and early 60s. He's a lot like Gary Myers. He's one of the last of the Old Guard Arkham House authors, and they were both published by August Derleth in their teens. He has published a crapload of stories and novels. Some Lovecraft, others not. He has a plethora of Lifetime Achievement Awards, Stoker Awards, Fantasy Awards. Um... I'm personally have, I'm not too familiar with his body of work. Michelle and I did have the honor to meet him at StokerCon back in 2018. And this short story is actually my first exposure to Ramsey Campbell. So with that in mind, let's talk about the inhabitant of the lake. So Michelle, first impressions. First impressions. Um, well, I'm going to say that I actually... Really enjoyed uh, Ramsey Campbell's story. Like you, uh, this is my, I believe, my first uh, Campbell story that I've read. Um, having read several other uh, Lovecraft stories and, and what we've covered in past episodes, um, I think that uh, Campbell really gives nods to Lovecraft in a lot of ways um, through different techniques that he employs. Um, you know, reaching into the uh, cosmic horror, the Cthulhu, the old ones, the elder gods, and so forth. Um, but he also does work at um, kind of expanding and creating uh, his own universe uh, with Glacky. Um, so with that, I... I actually enjoyed it, and I'm sure that we'll dig further into specific aspects. What about you? As a quick aside, I believe it's pronounced Glacky. So if we're mispronouncing that, uh, sorry. But it looks like Glacky, so that's what we're running with. Um, you know, usually when they say, like, the first time you hear a song that becomes, like, your preferred version of the song you know subsequent covers and remixes kind of you find wanting i feel that way with uh, inhabitant of the lake you know when if it's your first ramsey campbell story and it hits all the notes that you really look for in a uh, lovecraft pastiche or other type of story and it just knocks it out the park i'm almost afraid to dive into other campbell's work because i'm afraid it won't be as fun or as well executed as this and i know that's a misnomer i i i mean there's a reason why he's revered and everything but i really dug this story it's lovecraft without being lovecraft and i think that's what we're probably going to dive into here in a minute of how you can write in the lovecraft vein without you know having all his you know uh, bad attributes and creating something that's uniquely yours at the same time uh, I think both Michelle and I, we'd agree over the course of not just doing this podcast, but other readings. You know, there's just folks out there who will write a short story and slap a Cthulhu in it and call it done. Then there's folks who really dig down and do something either subversive or different or unique. And I would say Campbell falls into the unique category. So I think the first thing to start out with is... Let's talk about what Glacky is. Um, <laughs> I, we talked a little bit about it in the, the plot synopsis, but, you know, kind of one of the crutches of Lovecraft's universe is his, his giant bestiary of uh, gods, critters, monsters, and other aliens out there. And, 
you know, uh, Campbell's story has that as well. So the first time I read this story was a couple years ago. And revisiting it, my perceptions of Glacky shifted greatly. When I first um, read uh, The Inhabitant of the Lake, and when I looked at the, the beautiful, uh, I think the artist, his name's Daniel Sarah, I believe. He does a lot of art for not just Dark Regents Press, but for Raw Dog Screaming Press. Um, you know, since that was the cover of that book is my first impression of what Glacky looks like. And to me, he looks like a giant turtle with some spikes on his back. Um, and to me, that recalls a lot of other imagery, such as uh, Lavos from Chrono Trigger, which is a giant turtle from space with spines on his back that can bring about the end of the world. Um, but rereading this and also going online to get supplemental information on what Glacky is, he's, he's mostly depicted as a slug, <laughs> a slug with spines on his back. I don't know how I feel about that. I prefer turtles over slugs. A slug to me is a bit more of a vicious monster, which I guess kind of puts it in Lovecraft territory of octopus and cephalopods, but uh, I like turtles. <laughs> um, but that was kind of my first impression, uh, how it kind of shifted from one uh, viewpoint to another. And that's, you know, that's what you find in a lot of Lovecraft writing is you're given just enough of the monster that you can have established. It has X, Y, and Z, but you yourself have to fill in A, B, C, D, E, and F, and so on. And I, I know, uh, you know, you and I talked about this prior to the podcast, but uh, I originally, as I read the story, I visualized a completely different monster. Um, I was going by a photocopy and even though I have the cover of the book photocopied uh, with the rest of my pages, I honestly just kind of ignored it and, and bypassed it and didn't even think that that was Glacky on the cover. Um, so when I was reading the descriptor in the story, I really thought of this almost kind of blobbous monster with lots of tendrils, with these main spines on him, um, but that he was almost, because of these tendrils, it's almost like fine seaweed, dangerous obviously, with this city kind of intertwined, so it's almost like a smoke and mirrors, and I think that this will be kind of interesting when we get into the second one and we talk about reflection, um, but that's honestly the way that I pictured this monster. So when we were looking at pictures again back on the cover and then other ones that we found online, I was like, um, I didn't picture a slug or a turtle. I, I'm almost uh, going all along with that, though. The other depiction is the city uh, aspect. When I first read Inhabitant of the Lake, I actually, again, keeping at the turtle motif, I thought Glacky had a city on his back, which I think is a really cool concept. Imagine a giant turtle with a kind of a city full of spires and spikes and tendrils on its back. Um, it makes me think of a, a critter from uh, the second edition of Dungeons & Dragons called the, the Zaratan, which is a giant island turtle that has, you know, a whole ecosystem on its back. And, you know, that goes into, I think, you know, there's mythology out there about the world turtle and turtles all the way down and so on and so forth. So, you know, upon rereading, it sounds like it's more like the meteor has a city on it and Glacky is the last denizen of this city. 
and the city is more or less kind of intact at the bottom of the lake, and he just kind of sits in the center of it. So I guess it's still kind of on his back, you know, he's just kind of surrounded by it. But, uh, again, nothing bad, it's just, you know, the ad advantageous quality of rereading stories and prepping for a podcast to get to go, oh, how did I miss that? Well, and, and wow, boy, we sure have different... Uh... Uh, conceptualizations of what the monster actually looked like, which I think is kind of the power of Lovecraft originally, but also with a number of other Lovecraftian writers that take that technique um, and don't give you all of the the details and leaves it to your imagination to fill in. Um, and you're able as a reader to kind of fill in well, what is the what is my concept of horror? What would scare me? And then apply that to what I visualize the monster to be. So, for Glacky himself, I mean, how does he, you know, uh, stack up to other deities in the the Lovecraft canon? You know, Lovecraft created you know a plethora of them. You know, the iconic Cthulhu, but then you've got a uh, you know all the other ones that are related to it. Shib Nigroth and uh, Yog Sothoth, and then you've got you know people who built in that you know Lynn Carter came out with Zoth Amog, and now you have uh, Campbell with Glacky. Um, are we just kind of rehashing old ideas and making it new? Is this a monster that stands on its own? Um, which which is kind of an interesting thing because a lot of other authors who do create their own monsters they make sure to cameo their work with Lovecraft stuff. So, you know, if a, a person in a, another short story comes across a, a new great old one, there's sure to be name droppings of Cthulhu and Yogg-Sothoth and so on and so forth to cement that they're part of the same universe. But Glacky doesn't have that, uh, you know. In fact, if, if there wasn't the uh, outside-the-story connections that this was a Lovecraft story... This would almost be like an independent, you know, monster, an independent thing altogether. So with that in mind, you know, how, how does he stack up to other Lovecraft monsters? Is he a, a, a worthy addition to it? Is it uh, superfluous? Well, the one thing that I would say that I would point out from the story, um, and it's on page 31, um, and that's where Campbell does make a reference to the 48 Aklo and it's the fictionalized language, um, and it's 48 revelations recorded by Aklo. Lovecraft did use it in some of his other stories, um, and I think we'll talk about it a bit more um, as we talk about techniques and Lovecraft connection. But I do think that that's, that may be the only overt uh, connection because the 48 Aklo, Aklo recordings are up through 48, and then the 49th is where Campbell puts Glacky. So it's kind of interesting that it, he piggybacks on Lovecraft, and I think that's the only kind of But it's super most subtle, outward. though. Like it you, is. If it you is. read, uh, like, Lynn Carter's Zoth Almog cycle, you know, he makes sure to find, like, oh, here's a book, and, you know, here's all my other monsters, but, hey, here's a, here's a Lovecraft monster, here's Cthulhu, here's, you know, that photogen phrase that we hear all the time so it's nice to see you know Campbell kind of you know holding back the other kind of scenario I'll put out there and it's kind of a, a paradoxical statement <clears throat> and that is 
you know, through a lot of the Lovecraft mythos canon, whatever you want to call it, you know, one of the things that they stress is, you know, we humans, and by extension the Earth, is we're insignificant in this grand scheme of the, the chaotic universe. We can't even fathom what's going out there. And, you know, the, the gods of Lovecraft's uh, pantheon, they're indifferent to us. You know, they, they could care almost less, you know. You know, sure, they have a couple cultists and whatnot, but, you know, we're fleas to them. You know, they're neither good nor evil. They're just indifferent. <clears throat> With that in mind, you know, adding Glacky to the mix, and Campbell also has other gods that he's created that's in his kind of fictional New England, not New England, England, England area. It kind of gets you wondering, Earth is freaking covered in great old ones. Um, you know, from Arkham to the Pacific to England to, um, uh, you know, China, Asia, uh, everyone. There is so many great old ones just running around. Uh, I mean, that's a little uh, hyperbolic there. You know, they're still hidden away or sleeping or whatever. But for such a small, insignificant planet and everything... We have a lot of old gods here, and I don't know if that's a, a good thing or a bad thing. It's a fun thing. It's nice to always, you know, read about a new monster or whatnot, but at the same time, you know, pretty soon you're going to have a, a planet that's just populated with ancient, you know, gods who supposedly don't care about us soaking up the real estate. So, you know, adding Glacky to the mix is, you know, does it ruin anything? Does it kind of instead of underscore, instead dilute that message of, of our insignificance? That's a, that's a good question. And I, I think that, I don't think it dilutes, uh, but I do find it, it's a, it's a very interesting observation that you've made about all the elder gods, the old ones, Cthulhu. Um, where are they and why haven't they taken over the earth? Um, what keeps them at bay? Well, the stars aren't right, apparently. <laughs> the stars aren't right, I guess. But also, through this story, we find that Glacky um, uses uh, dream pool and dreams as a way of, of gathering servants. The, as you mentioned, the, the green decay or, you know, for all types of purposes, you know, decaying zombies with a singular, you know, focus. In, in this story, we find that he is kind of relegated to a particular area. Um, in Campbell's story, Glacky, you know, is definitely supreme in the lake and in the surrounding area. But beyond that, we don't really hear anything about Glacky. Um, and so, you know, maybe that's what's going on with some of the other gods. Um, and we just don't know enough about them. I think that that's what makes Campbell's story rather interesting, that there's this <clears throat> cosmic out there, but at the same time, there is a limit to it. And isn't that always kind of the story, kind of the concepts that we grapple with, you know, is something finite or is it infinite? I mean, that's always kind of, you know, questions that we ask ourselves. Um so I think that, you know, he's he's packaged it really nicely into the story. So Glacky is, I would say, kind of Campbell's contribution to the greater Lovecraft canon. But Campbell also takes a lot of Lovecraft stuff into his own story. Um, I think the first one would be 
what are some other, you know, short stories and whatnot that Lovecraft has written that Campbell unabashedly lifts from? Uh, the first one uh, comes to mind is obviously Pickman's Model. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, <clears throat> actually, uh, Pickman's Model with a little bit of uh, Call of Cthulhu, just because Lovecraft, you know, a lot of his characters, if they're not the professor intellectual type, they turn out to be artisans, and there's a lot of emphasis on paintings and sculpting and bas-reliefs and whatnot. Um, Thomas is, for all purposes, he, he is he's uh, a, a Pickman. You know, he he the same subject matter. You know, he wants to uh, paint the grotesque, the uh, macabre, uh, the stuff that's scandalous. Uh, he draws his inspiration from haunted things. Uh, in Pickman's model, it turns out, you know, there's, you know, monsters uh, coming from the well, the uh, the ghouls. In uh, Children of Glacky, it's friggin', you know, God in the lake with some zombies running around. There really isn't uh, much of a difference between uh, Thomas and and Pickman in that regard, except for maybe, maybe Thomas might be, I don't know, I want to say the word sane, but they're both eccentric, but they're eccentric in different ways. Like, Pickman sounds like he's more of a mad eccentric, while Thomas is more of an aloof eccentric, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think he, he pulls more from inspiration of his surroundings rather than... Um, I think also we... I'm sorry, I'm kind of jumping, but we don't get a, a real sense of the background of Thomas, the artist... Um, as we do, I think, with Pickman. With Pickman, we get a little more of what his his motivation is, what his drive is, versus with Thomas, all we know is that he's really into macabre art and creating that kind of visceral experience for people that come to view his art. Um, but beyond that, we really don't have an indicator as to why he's so much into that art. Does he believe in all of these monsters? I don't necessarily think that he does. And I think this is going to be a point, um, and maybe I can just bring it up now. I feel that um, Thomas doesn't seem to have a leaning towards the forbidden knowledge and things like that, at least nothing that's hinted at um, in the story. Well, he eventually gets the bookcase, you know, he, and, he, and, and he gets sucked into all that. Now, you know... He, he does, and I think... Part of being an artisan, yeah, you do get kind of sucked into that. But he he wasn't predispositioned to it. Um, not like the author of the book who I think even says that he, you know, was looking at the forbidden knowledge. He had an interest in it. So therefore he was more predispositioned to being influenced and kind of seen through that lens when things happened. I don't know that Thomas had that same sort of lens going into this story. I would say that the other thing that Campbell lifts from is the uh, the epistolary format. Uh, a good chunk of uh, A Habit of the Lake is told through letters, which mimics a lot of Lovecraft's work, which is letters and diary entries. And I have a soft spot for that. Uh, I think those are kind of fun to read. I think it really shows a, a writer that it can, you can definitely, you have to tap into different voices of your characters more overtly. 
mm-hmm. uh, if you're a, a first person uh, perspective, you know, your, your voice is just yourself and you're just interpreting your surroundings. If you're a third person perspective, that kind of God's eye view, you kind of have, uh, I don't, I don't know how to put it. You, you do have to get into everyone's head, but usually one at a time. But when you take the epistolary format, you know, those letters and diary entries truly, truly, truly have to be from that person's voice, from that person's perspective and that mannerisms, or you just have a monotonous sounding narrative all the way through. And that's something I've always liked about Lovecraft is he, he's able to break that up. And I think uh, Campbell does the same thing. Uh, I would, and I would argue that Campbell does a better job because he's, he's had an editor, either himself or himself and someone else that has been able to create a, a really good pacing of this story, which unfortunately a lot of Lovecraft uh, stories have tended to kind of linger and meander and really needed to be honed in and more concise. I think that Campbell's story really hones in, keeps the pacing clipping along really well, manages or balances out this, the voices of the various characters very well, um, and it, it works well. I like the epistolary uh, format as well, um, and I actually enjoyed that, that narrative structure kind of breaking up between kind of the third-person omnipresent narrator, although it's obviously through Alan, uh, the friend, but it was a nice break to have those different structures in place. The other thing going off with the epistolary format is, you know, the contribution to the to the fake books. You know, we have the infamous Necronomicon. Um, you know, Campbell brings forth the uh, the Revelations of Glacky, which is isn't con- just one book; it's multiple books in a series that's been uh, edited and compiled and throughout the ages and. I think deep down, all of us who uh, are into kind of Lovecraft stuff really wish that we kind of had our own special book, you know, some sort of book from antiquity. Or, and I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, so many special editions of Lovecraft's and Campbell's books float around, like from PS uh, Publishing and whatnot. Oh, here's a limited edition, 100 version copy of this book that's uh, embossed and all that other stuff, because I think we're all kind of bibliophiles and we eat that up. Not just in reality, but we like that bibliophilia in our texts. So seeing another, you know, fake tome added to the Lovecraft canon, I think is it's kind of a fun thing. You know, mm-hmm. it's you know the trope of the genre that you know us readers come to expect and come to enjoy. Um, I would say that um, one of the other stories that uh, I felt that Campbell tapped into was the color out of space. Um, particularly through the use of the rural or isolated setting. Uh, Thomas was out in the, out in the forest uh, in, you know, probably like kind of a lake district of England. Um, And that's a great setting to really isolate your character, allow that uh, sense of suspense and tension to build. And um, that's, uh, I think, Another aspect that I think Campbell really, you know, uses a a Lovecraft device very well. Um, I also felt that uh, the other thing coming out of uh, Color Out of Space was the inclusion of the water element, the lake. 
um, as well as the, the meteor device. I mean, Colorado space is all centered around that meteor, meteor that falls into the well. And so I think that this really is, a, again, an, a real good, solid nod to Colorado space. Well, in addition to that, the ending of uh, Inhabitant of the Lake is how Color Out of Space more or less begins. Uh, Inhabitant of the Lake, he takes the tendril, spike, whatever, to the professors and they're stumped with it. The beginning of Color Out of Space is they take the, uh, the meteor crystal fragment to the professors uh, and, at Arkham, and of course they're stumped by that as well. And there's also that uh, ecological point to it too. Mm -hmm. You know, Color Out of Space is... You know, the farmland becomes uh, barren and ashen. Um, and I think that has a little bit in common with the, the green decay in a weird sort of way that, that these folks will eventually, uh, you know, wither. Uh, you know, sunlight hurts them. You know, the life is being drained from them uh, over time as well. Oh, uh, one of the things that I remember from uh, Pickman's model um Lovecraft spends a lot of time uh, tying into the Salem Witch Trials. And uh, Campbell does uh, a similar device with uh, the association of the witch's mark, uh, basically the, the, the spine from Glacky hitting the chest and creating a witch's mark. Um, he actually talks about uh, one of the witch hunters from, I think, like the 1600s, maybe earlier than that. I'd have to dig through my notes, but um, I thought that was kind of a nice touch and, and interesting. I actually went and looked up the guy and, and was like, wow, this is not a nice guy. All right. Well, wow. that uh, We spent quite a bit of time on it in Habitat of the Lake. I think it's time to move on to uh, mirror fishing. I think it is. Part two, Mirror Fishing by John Langan. So before we get started, I thought, uh, given that listeners may not be familiar with him, I'd like to provide a brief biography before jumping into the synopsis. So American horror dark fiction writer John Langham began to appear in a number of publications beginning around 2001, and his second novel, The Fisherman, was a Bram Stoker Award winner in 2016. He has described his writing as, quote, Stephen King kind of stuff, end quote. Outside of his own writing, John Langan uh, writes reviews for Locust Magazine and serves on the board of directors for the Shirley Jackson Awards. If you uh, don't mind, I'm going to borrow a response that John gave during an interview with Brian Sammons that was posted in 2016 at the Dark Regions Press, uh, in which he describes his story and how it came about. Quote, I'm a big fan of Ramsey Campbell's work with Stephen King, Peter Straub, and I think Clive Barker and Thomas uh, Ligotti. Campbell is one of the wellsprings of horror literature of the last three decades. It's not only his fiction, which ranges far both in terms of his technical ambitions and his dialogue with the horror tradition but his editing work, which has concentrated on bringing attention to the variety of the field. So the chance to write something in response and tribute to his considerable achievements was a welcome one. Right off the bat, though, Glacky posed something of a challenge, given that the monster is supposed to reside in a lake in Campbell's uh, invented topography. 
but it occurred to me that the entity might not have entered the lake, but the water's reflection, and that was, and if that was the cause, then it might be assessed through reflective surfaces. surfaces. This led to the idea of, lose, of using a mirror as a portal uh, to that shimmering space. I had been writing a number of stories that deliberately incorporated elements of autobiography, and I remembered a visit with a slightly older cousin and one of her friends had made to my family the summer after I finished seventh grade. That friend had interest me to no end. She did not accompany us to church on Sunday, preferring to sunbathe in our backyard. Suppose I thought that she had had some sort of knowledge that sounded enough like uh, a figure called Ode uh, Gaelkit, odd being Scottish for old, uh, Gaelkit, the word for foolish, that also sounded enough like uh, the name of Campbell's invention for me to pass it off as a coded way for disciples of the creature to refer to it without raising the suspicion of the ecclesiastical authorities. And suppose that this young woman were to be interested in sharing her knowledge with the oldest child of the family with whom she was visiting. What might her motives be? How would a 12-year-old boy respond to the attention of a slightly older girl and to the revelation of something fantastic, frightening, on the other side of the mirror? I suppose Campbell's original lake is present in the idea of using a kind of fishing to open the portal from this world to, Galacky, to Galacky's realm. It would have been simple enough to, to have her feed the boy to the monster, but I wanted something more complex. So John's story centers around a young teenage boy named Patrick and an older teenage girl named Lisa from England. Let's go ahead and kind of get into the discussion. So to start it off, Nick, what were your thoughts of the story? Did you like it? Yeah, it was a it was a fun story. Uh, you know, two kids kind of fishing in a mirror that are kind of summoning Glacky in a weird sort of way. Uh, there's a retroism quality to it that we'll talk about that's really nice. Uh, it deals with, you know, there's bullying going on and looking up to other people. It's a bit of a magical quality to it rather than a cosmic quality that you find in more other Lovecraft positions. I can say that in the entirety of the Children of Glacky anthology. This is one of the better short stories. Uh, and this isn't uh, focused on this short story, perchance, but in a, a greater scheme of things. The Children of Glacky anthology as a whole has a whole bunch of these like sub-stories that deal with Glacky in a variety of different fashions. And it, it, that would be fun. It's just that... <sighs> A lot of the stories get kind of silly. There's like one where like they play an arcade game to summon Glacky. There's another one of a rock band. And these all feel like, you know, 10th wave Cthulhu stories. While on the other hand, you know, Glacky being like a fresh mythos to, you know, build off of. There's nothing else really written by it. You know, you have a, some really good opportunities to really do something uh, on top of uh, Campbell's work, and I feel like a lot of authors in the Children of Glacky book didn't take that route. It sounds like they just kind of wrote other Lovecraft stories that you kind of read right now. I'm just going to do something kind of weird, something kind of bizarre. Um, just a missed <coughs> opportunity. 
Um, that aside, uh, mirror fishing, I don't think, is one of those uh, stories. I think it takes a more folky approach to uh, Glacky. It's Glacky compatible, and it's uh, fun and a little bit on the somber side to read, I would say. Well, I think you hit a lot of uh, points, Nick, that um, I definitely want to touch on. Uh, one of the things that I keyed in to was the fact that uh, Langan does describe himself as a Stephen King kind of writer, kind you know, writes that kind of kind of motifs, um, and definitely uh, got that sense in this story. Uh, there's a lot of nostalgia. And um, we hear a lot about uh, different studies with regards to nostalgia and how it works. Um, we've seen it probably uh, most efficiently uh, in more recently with Stranger Things and that nostalgia quality of the early 80s. Um, this story is set, I'm going to guess, probably like mid-70s um, based on like the posters around the wall and just kind of the the feelings that Langan uh, evokes of this lazy Saturday afternoon, um, you know, two kids in a bedroom, um, a slightly older uh, girl who has more knowledge than the young boy, um, and there's a lot of nostalgia. I'm, it definitely played on my own nostalgia of my childhood and how... Um, I know I would have felt if I was sitting in a boy's bedroom and we're, you know, I don't know, talking about games or whatever, or, you know, fishing for an elder god, I guess. So, um, they go to a KB toy store, which totally took me back to my teens. That doesn't even exist anymore. The, the poster of like the $6 million man and a few other things that he alludes to, was uh, definitely in keeping with uh, Stephen King's short stories, such as most particularly Stand By Me, um, which are the movie Stand By Me, but the novella is The Body. Um, but I think that uh, Langan does a really nice job of crossing over the Lovecraft, Campbell, uh, Cosmic Monster to this nostalgia, this this everyday person that everyone can relate to. I think that's what has made Stephen King so popular, and, and I think that it really works well here. He did a really nice job with regards to balancing out the two. Um, I'd also say that another way that he does it is through the teenagers um, and th using their point of view. Um, I can remember being a teenager and kind of being on that cusp of, you know, adulthood and, and starting to learn about, learn about and, and how would I deal with adult themes. Uh, the, the protagonist, Patrick, um, has a religious background and he is faced with, you know, not altogether following Lisa's kind of direction that she's going with, like, want versus lust and desire for Patrick. It's still very kind of this innocence, uh, teenage or childlike uh, uh, interest in toys where she takes it to the next degree and, and turns it like, well, you may say it's want, but it's really desire and lust. 
as a way to kind of build. And, and so it's opening his eyes. It's, you know, his innocence is slowly being eroded through the pages of this story, which I think is, is so well done. Well, he has to go from zero to adult very, very quickly at the end when, you know, Lisa gets basically, you know, chopped in half when she's at the mirror portal closes on her. And now he's got, you know, half her skull to sit in there. And he's like, oh, crap, I got to come up with a plan to, I mean, how do you explain this? The truth won't work, Mom. I went fishing in a mirror and I saw an, a, a great old one. You can't do that. So... What's the next best thing you do? Concoct, you know, a giant conspiracy scheme of broken mirrors, she took off, uh, all that other stuff. And, and the ploy works, you know. Um, and, you know, had he been younger, he probably would have, you know, not had that success. You know, he would have been, you know, caught in a giant lie uh, or he wouldn't have been able to execute any of this. But, yeah, he basically had to become a fully functioning, rational, when it's irrational, adult extremely quickly. And I'm guessing, you know, kids and Stephen, I haven't read much Stephen King, but like mm -hmm. the kids in It probably have to do a similar, you know, metamorphosis mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. So surprisingly to me, or I don't know why I say surprising. I think that Langan writes a very believable protagonist um, and I think that that's why this story is so successful is that this kid has the wherewithal to kind of think on his feet, um, and devise a plan and is able to execute it in the few hours that his, his folks and, uh, siblings are out shopping for the afternoon. Um, you know, Patrick has to... Yes, he has to become a, a cleaner, <laughs> um, and as well as divining, devising this plan that's basically going to be able to fool everyone else and uh, try to keep Glacky basically at bay um, and not coming through the various reflective surfaces. You know, he also has to deal with uh, very everyday things that any number one of us deals with, and that is revenge. This kid is, is one who's been picked on by other kids, and, you know, he has to grapple for a moment, you know, while he basically become a disciple and bring other kids into the reflection so that Glacky can basically feed off of them and go grow in strength and ability to look further out afield to other reflective service surfaces or is he going to be the hero and realize that he has to man up <clears throat> and basically try to save not just his life but also uh, human human life um, and I think he Langland does a believable job I think that's what sets him apart from other Lovecraft stories is that whereas I think things tend to get cosmic and unbelievable, here's a real nice blending of that nostalgia and that cosmic horror into something that's rather believable. I know that as I was reading through it, I felt such anxiety and tension and suspense as I was reading this story. I felt it was that good. I know you've been uh, making comparisons between the protagonists in this to like the kids in Stephen King's work, but uh, 
this story actually makes me think, <laughs> at, uh, awkwardly enough, of uh, the Godzilla film All Monsters Attack. Um, the kid in that film, uh, Ichiro, you know, he's a you know, kid, he's really into, uh, you know, Godzilla-type monsters, but also other, uh, what's the term, um, Takusatsu, you know, the the greater, you know, Japanese, you know, Ultraman and Kaijus and all that stuff. Uh, you know, Ichiro in All Monsters Attack is totally into that. He collects the figurines. He's invested in that type of stuff. Um, the Patrick in this obviously is as well. You know, he really wants his uh, Dangard Ace Shogun Warrior. So he's probably a little bit into, you know, Japanese culture, or at least, you know, the Japanese export of it, which would have been, you know, my guess would have been um, Speed Racer and Astro Boy and all that stuff at the time. Ultraman. Ultraman, mm -hmm. Voltron, and whatnot. Yep. But just like in All Monsters Attack, you know, this this kid has to deal with a giant monster. You know, Godzilla and um, Gabara. <laughs> uh, while Patrick has to deal with Glacky, which, look, let's be honest. I mean, there's been a lot of comparisons of Godzilla to Cthulhu over the years. They're, they're very... Uh, you know, large, godlike, monstrous creatures. Um, you know, both stories deal with a kid that has to deal with bullying. Both stories deal with a kid that, you know, is basically thrust into a fantastic world. Um, in this world, I'm sorry, in this story, the kid is in a, you know, a mirror universe, while in All Monsters Attack, you know, uh, Ichiro goes to Monster Island via his dreams, but he's still transported there for all purposes. Um, both this kid and Ichiro have to, you know, outwit, um, you know, people at the end. Uh, Ichiro has to outwit the bank robbers using his own kind of cunning, while Patrick has to outwit Lisa as he, you know, escapes her clutches and Glacky's clutches. So, I don't know why, I just detect a strong, heavy dosage of all monsters attack, which... I like that Godzilla film. I know a lot of other people don't. They think it's campy and whatnot, but I have a soft spot for it. I see a lot of Ichiro from that film and Patrick in Mirror Fishing. Well, I think that uh, taking it a step further, I mean, we could definitely um, infer the hero's journey in both of these stories. Um, it Well, in this story as well as the... Um, the Godzilla one that you were speaking of, I've already forgotten the title, but, um, all monsters attack, all monsters attack. Yeah. There's definitely, you know, the little boy at the end, you know, he foils the bank robbers based on all the, the, the things that he's learned while he's been on the monster Island. And so Patrick has to kind of pull together, his own kind of commonsensical experience that he has to save the day. Um, I'd like to ask you your thoughts. Do you feel, how do you feel this story fits within Lovecraftian lit literature? Well, one, one quick, one more Godzilla aside. Going back to what I said in the original, in our first part about the inhabitant of the lake, where I said Glacky, I thought was a turtle with spines on his back. Mm -hmm. He also looks like Agris, the turtle monster from Godzilla, hence the Godzilla connection in here. I don't know where I'm going with that, but you can kind of see. How does uh, mirror fishing fit in the greater Lovecraft universe? You know, I, I think there's a roundabout way to fit it in. I mean, there's obviously through Inhabitant of the Lake. 
but there's an actual Army of Darkness comic series called Army of Darkness versus Reanimator that came out, I think, 13 years ago. Uh, the Evil Dead and Army of Darkness uh, series have always had a big Lovecraft element. I mean, Ash has the Necronomicon, you know, the uh, the Deadites uh, deal a lot with, you know, Possession, which is found in some other Lovecraft stories, um, Witchcraft, and so on and so forth. Um, but um, when Dynamite Comics, you know, they got the license to Army of Darkness, but they also started doing all these... Uh, team-ups with other comics and the very first team-up that they did was with uh, Reanimator and of course it, it made sense because uh, you know Jeffrey Combs was a big uh, person in the original Reanimator he's also you know been in a lot of other Lovecraft type stuff and of course him and um, Bruce Campbell had done stuff together it just kind of made sense but it really solidified uh, you know, Army of Darkness and Lovecraft to have this crossover between Army of Darkness and Reanimator. What does that have to do with mirror fishing? Well, in Army of Darkness Reanimator, it, it plays off of one of the things that happens in uh, Army of Darkness. It's when Ash is in the windmill and he breaks a mirror and all these little baby ashes come out and they terrorize him and all this other stuff. They expand on that in Army of Darkness Reanimator. Um, reflected images in this comic... Uh, act as a gateway to kind of a mirror universe um, where not only were evil ashes but a plethora of other monsters and stuff and so in Army of Darkness Reanimator you know Ash is battling uh, you know he's in an insane asylum uh, Herbert West is there he's making his critters uh, you know lots of chainsawing ensues but he, he gets sucked into a mirror and his evil doppelganger pops out instead and so he's kind of trapped in this other world for a while. And, it, you know, that comic, I thought, just kind of, you know, greatly expanded, you know, like, you know, taking the Lovecraft reanimator slash mirror world in a different way. And I think uh, mirror fishing kind of taps into that a bit. Uh, totally coincidentally, but I don't think it's, uh, you know, unheard of or it's not, you know, incompatible in any way or shape. I think what Langham came up with was something that folks came up with in this comic book, you know, a couple years ago, and they're very similar, and I think it works very fun. So um, I think it also fits well within the literature. I think that it fills a void in Lovecraftian literature in a, in a very effective way, and that is, you know, uh, expanding the voice of uh, point of view of stories, uh, you know, moving away from the adult male. Patrick, uh, we don't know his ethnicity, um, but he is a teenage boy, um, and we do get a different uh, voice from what we typically get with Lovecraft, um, and hopefully there will be more teenage-type stories that uh, draw on the strength of the character um, and gives us uh, more more interesting stories that kind of blend uh, nostalgia or some other sort of uh, writer uh, technique and uh, expands even further on the Lovecraftian literature that we have today. Um, I think that that... Uh, do you have uh, closing shots or comments with regards to this story? You know, it's the last story that's in Children of Glacky. I think it's a good story to you know, one in that anthology with and two kind of into our podcast with. Um, 
you know, the, the anthology started with Inhabitant Lake, ended with Mirror Fishing. It seems very fitting to kind of compare and contrast those two stories. They, they go well together. They're two standout stories in the anthology. They both, uh, one, you know, establishes a brand new monster, and the other one kind of takes it in a, a new and inventive route that, you know, is is very Lovecraftian, but at the same time, you know, it does its own thing as well. Has has children in it. Children are usually absent from Lovecraft uh, stories. Uh, has a more folk element to it. Although, you know, as you pointed out a couple times, you know, Lovecraft wasn't afraid to bring up witches and Salem witch trials and stuff. But, you know, kind of diving into the, the mirror universe, that's kind of a more fantastical element rather than a cosmic element. But it's it's not out of place. It's um, It's a good story, that's for sure. Part three, conclusion. So The Inhabitant of the Lake was originally published in Campbell's short story collection, The Inhabitant of the Lake and Less Welcome Tenants, by Arkham House in 1964. The collection has been republished a few other times, the first time under the title Cold Print in the 80s, and then as The Inhabitant of the Lake and Other Unwelcome Tenants, by PS Publishing in the 2010s. The short story proper has been republished in The Children of Glacky from Dark Regents Press in the 2010s, which is the version that we reused for this podcast. The story was continued in the novella The Last Revelation of Glacky, which was published in 2013 and looks to be out of print and fetching a large dollar amount. The novella was in turn collected in Visions from Birchester, which was published by PS Publishing a few years later. The Children of Glacky collection uh, collects multiple adjacent Glacky stories uh, of varying qualities. And finally, Langham's Mirror Fishing is currently unique to this anthology. And on the subject of books, I'd like to take a moment to uh, spotlight uh, Michelle's and my newest book. Uh, we referenced it at the beginning of the podcast, but about two months ago we had a new book published from McFarlane called Horror Literature from Gothic to Postmodern Critical Essays. It collects... Uh, a few of the presentations from the first two years of our Anne Radcliffe Academic Conference. Of uh, interest to listeners to this podcast is The Gelatinous Green Immensity, Weird Fiction and the Grotesque Sublime by Johnny Murray. Uh, this essay dives into the weird fiction genre, uh, including H.P. Lovecraft. Nick and I wanted to share an upcoming event that we have. Uh, we do a podcast on Pride of Olympus Blog Talk Radio. The series is called Scholars from the Edge of Time. Uh, our next one is scheduled for the fourth Thursday, April 23rd, to commence at 6 p.m. And on this particular episode, we're going to interview Ian Welke. He is an avid dungeon master and horror writer. His short stories have appeared in magazines and anthologies, and his novels include The Whisperer in Dissonance and In Times at Ridgemont High. Both are published by Omnium Gatherum. And for our next episode, if you'd like to follow along and want to read the material ahead of time, uh, we're actually going to uh, review and discuss Ian Welke's In Times at Ridgemont High. And we will be posting that uh, the first weekend of May. If you want to stay in touch with us online, we are on all the major social media platforms on uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and email. Everything is HP Lovecast. So HP Lovecast at gmail.com, at HP Lovecast, and so on and so forth. 
You can also Google for Michelle and I if you want to reach out to us for our individual projects as well. Uh, all these accounts, let's just be honest, have been a little dormant for the past year and some change. Uh, but just like uh, Slumbering Cthulhu, we are slowly waking them up. Uh, we will be broadcasting this episode across all those uh, social medias. And feel free to stay in touch and reach out to us on them. Uh, we look forward to touching base with everyone in a month when we talk about Ian Welke's uh, in times at Ridgemont High. Thank you so much for listening in on this episode of HP Lovecast. <laughs>